0: well sorry about that and welcome to the program i'm matthew arnold for virgin most powerful radio you're listening to no nonsense catholic the queen is dead long live the king i was out last week and i haven't had the opportunity to comment on the passing of queen elizabeth ii and so that's going to be our first topic today we're also going to be talking about prayer and about the uh readings from last Sunday. But to begin, Queen Elizabeth II has passed to her eternal reward. Prince Charles is now King Charles III. The Pope sent a telegram to the new king It uh, said, deeply saddened to learn of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, I offer heartfelt condolences to your majesty, the members of the royal family, the people of the United Kingdom, and the Commonwealth. I willingly join all who mourn her loss in praying for the late queen's eternal rest and in paying tribute to her life of unstinting service to the good of the nation and the commonwealth, her example of devotion to duty, her steadfast witness of faith in Jesus Christ, and her firm hope in his promises, Uh, Queen Elizabeth actually met five different popes during her lifetime, and her meeting with Pope Francis at the Vatican in 2014 was marked the 100th anniversary of the reestablishment of diplomatic relations between um, the United Kingdom and the Holy See. And, and I point out this kind of official position of the church because uh, in, you know, certain Catholics in the blogosphere over the past weeks have made some really uh, reprehensible comments about the late queen and her Christian faith and monarchy and royalty in general. And and having had the time to chew and digest some of the worst of that commentary, I thought I would offer a, a few thoughts today. First of all, be it known throughout the land that I am a medievalist and therefore a monarchist at heart. And like all true Christians, I consider myself a loyal subject of the King of Kings. And although the church can, has, and does subsist under various forms of government, I'm quick to point out that St. Thomas Aquinas regarded monarchy as the form of government most congenial to the Catholic faith and the the form most just and prudent for the good governance of the people, especially as that institution existed in medieval Christendom with its um, kind of interwoven system of religious and political and cultural checks and balances. Now, given my views, I have been asked if I would prefer to live in a Protestant monarchy or a Catholic republic. And and for an answer, I defer to Sir Charles Coulomb, who, by the way, is going to be joining us as a host, uh, joining our our weekly stable of hosts with a new show on VMPR that's going to be called The Never-Ending Struggle. So watch out for that. Uh, But he pointed out years ago, uh, that, in a sense, this is a false question. Historically, there have been uh, various attempts at a quote-unquote Catholic republic, by which is meant a republic, uh, a Republican state run according to Catholic principles. And it's been tried in such places as Ireland, Portugal, Poland, Ecuador, uh, elsewhere in Latin America. But what you have in, in these cases is essentially an anti-Catholic form of government staffed by Catholics. And as soon as those Catholics are voted out or otherwise replaced by uh, different sorts of folk, the history shows that the state and the society quickly become secularized. And as Mr. Coulomb points out, he says this is simply a case of the chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. Now, on the contrary, in the case of a Protestant monarchies, those that still exist, like Great Britain, uh, Sweden, Denmark, Netherlands... Uh, and, and even those Protestant monarchies that have been overthrown, uh, like the, the the German Protestant monarchies, what you have uh, is essentially a long-standing Catholic institution that was simply overlaid with a, with a Protestant veneer. And you could really see that if you, if you saw any of the images from the Queen's funeral there at uh, St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. That I would remind. Uh, Everyone that that chapel was built by Catholics, that magnificent church, and dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. All right, so uh, the nature of the institution is such that divine providence can at any time uh, bring forth individuals who are quite reminiscent of their Catholic forebears, and according to Mister. Coulomb, quote, he said, "The great stability these countries possess, even in the midst of social change and revolution." may be laid to what remains of value uh, in their monarchies. Taking all this into consideration, he said, I would maintain that a truly Catholic republic is not possible. And what we call by that name is not preferable to a Protestant monarchy. So the, the main charge, though, that the, the Catholic Karens uh, w- would wanted to bring against the Queen is that she wasn't really a good Christian. That uh, That if she was a good Christian, for example, she would have vetoed the uh, British Abortion Act back in 1967. But she didn't. Therefore, she's not really pro-life. She's not really a Christian. uh, She's a coward, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this betrays uh, a lack of understanding of the power of the British monarchs under their constitution. The English sovereign cannot override the democratically elected House of Commons once its bills have been passed by the upper house. Well, except as, you know, rather narrowly defined by Parliament and the courts. In the current state of things, the veto power of the crown may only be exercised for one thing, and that's to prevent the abolition of democracy. So, for example, uh, uh, the monarch could veto an act if it was going to abolish elections. Now, that might seem ironic, but the modern British monarch's role is to be the final protection for their kingdom's democratic constitution. But for all that, it is a real and an important power. Just consider what happened in Germany back in 1933. If Germany had still had a monarch, even even if it was a constitutional monarch with the very limited powers of the present British monarchy, that monarch could have, for example, legitimately vetoed the uh, enabling bills of Adolf Hitler which eliminated the German democracy. And, and such a royal veto would have kept Chancellor Hitler from proclaiming himself der Führer. And the world might have been spared all that horror, but for the lack of a king. And now, uh, you know, on the contrary, uh, as the Catholic Karens propose, for, for Queen Elizabeth II to have unconstitutionally vetoed a bill passed by the parliament even one as immoral as the abortion act of 1967 would have been an act of treason. And it goes without saying that be, it's utterly acceptable for, for the monarch of all people to undertake an act of sedition against her own government. You know, regardless of how evil and repugnant that abortion bill destabilizing the, the the nation and staging an attempted coup d'etat to try and prevent it, would have been itself gravely immoral. You know, first off, it would have been illegal and condemned by the very constitution that the monarch is sworn to uphold. And, and therefore, it's also condemned by the church's moral theology. As Pope, uh, or not Pope, St. Uh, Paul taught in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 8, we may not do evil that good may come of it. In other words, the end does not justify the means. Now, there's a general argument against monarchy that kind of usually boils down to the question of, well, what happens if the king is a tyrant? And first off, I would point out that there's been no shortage of tyrants in, in modern d- democracies. Okay, no, no monarchy required for, for, for tyranny. Like we saw with Hitler, uh, getting rid of such tyrants uh, can require an unaccountable loss of, of, of life and property. But on the contrary, back in the Middle Ages, if a Catholic king broke the law, the great men of the nation would oppose him, those of the, you know, the aristocracy of the realm, would oppose him for his own sake, a la, you know, King John and Magna Carta. And if he went too far, the church would excommunicate him. But St. Peter tells us in, in the Bible, 1 Peter 2.17, to honor all men, to love the brotherhood, to fear God. And to honor the king. And remember, the king in, in St. Peter's day was Nero. You know, And it's true that in a monarchy, divine providence may at any time place on the throne a, a, an incompetent or an imbecile or a villain. But as uh, the late Solange Hertz once said, sometimes the emperor is Nero, but sometimes he is Marcus Aurelius. The people, on the other hand, are often Nero and never Marcus Aurelius. What St. Peter was getting at is that monarchs, good or bad, deserve our respect and our prayers because they rule by the grace of God from whom all authority comes. A monarch may require the consent of the governed in order to rule legitimately, but the people, quote-unquote, cannot confer the authority to govern because that's the act of a superior, and you can't give what you don't have. Hence Dr. Samuel Johnson's famous quote that, in monarchies there is respect for authority, but in republics there is only fear of power. Just consider the, the, in the past few weeks the, the raid on, on Mar-a-Lago. Okay, if they can John Wayne the door of a former president, you think you and I are safe? Uh, uh, Mark Hoke, most recently, uh, just the most recent of 10 or 11 um, uh, pro-life activists that have been, you know, uh, had the the SWAT team show up at their house at ODARC 30 and and take them away in handcuffs, uh, essentially over nothing. And as we just learned, uh, the IRS, the the people that collect your taxes— between March and June of this year spent uh, over seven, or nearly $700,000 on ammunition. Okay? So, when we come back, I'm going to close this off with a quote from uh, Archbishop John Healy, who was a a Catholic archbishop in Ireland in the last century. I think you'll be interested, and we're going to talk about prayer. The rich man and Lazarus, call no man father, got lots of stuff to cover. Stay with us here on No Nonsense Catholic at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We were talking about uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth and um, the the new king in England, Charles the Third, and about monarchy in general and the Catholic uh, stance on that. And I just wanted to share with you this quote from Archbishop John Healy, who he was the Catholic Archbishop of Tuam in Ireland back in the 20th century, and. These i want you to remember are the words of an Irish Catholic bishop living under an English Protestant monarch and uh, these words were addressed to the Catholic kearns of his day he said the characters of king the character of kings is sacred their persons are inviolable they are the anointed of the lord if not with sacred oil at least by virtue of their office Their power is based upon the will of God and not on the shifting sands of the people's will. They will be spoken of with becoming reverence instead of being in public estimation fitting butts for all foul tongues. It becomes a sacrilege to violate their persons, and every indignity offered to them in word or act becomes an indignity offered to God himself. It is this view of kingly rule that alone can keep alive in a scoffing and licentious age the spirit of ancient loyalty, that spirit begotten of faith, combining in itself obedience, reverence, and the love of the majesty of kings, which was at once a bond of social union, an incentive to noble daring, an assault to purify the heart from its grosser tendencies, preserving it from all that is mean selfish, and contemptible. And that's no nonsense. All right, and now on to this uh, Sunday's gospel. Last Sunday, the uh, in the ordinary form, the 26th uh, Sunday of ordinary time, and the reading is from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who used to dress in purple garments and the finest linen who was feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate <clears throat> and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who would have been grateful to be fed with the scraps that fell from the rich man's table even the dogs would come and lick his sores now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried in another world where he was in torment he looked up and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side and he called out father abraham have pity on me send lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for i am in agony in these flames but abraham replied my child remember that during your lifetime you received many good things while lazarus suffered greatly Now he is being comforted while you are in agony. Moreover, between us and you a great chasm has been established, so that no one who wishes to do so can pass from our side to yours, nor can anyone pass from your side to ours. Then I beg of you, Father, he said, to send him to my father's house, to warn my five brothers, lest they too end up in this place of torment. But Abraham responded, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham answered, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone should rise from the dead. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. The Pharisees considered wealth um, uh, to be a proof of God's favor and and a person's uh, righteousness. So Jesus startled them with this parable in which a diseased beggar is rewarded in the afterlife, but a rich man is punished. And by the way, that's what a parable is. These are are shocking stories. They're meant to to shake you out of your complacency. Uh, Tradition calls the rich man dives. And scripture names the poor man Lazarus. And of course, that um, should not be confused with Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. That Lazarus was a real person and a friend of our Lord, while this Lazarus is a character in a story. Uh, and in the parable, the rich man goes to hell, and, but not because of his wealth, rather because he was selfish because he refused to to help or take care of Lazarus or, or, you know, to take him in, or even just to to feed him. The rich man was hard-hearted in spite of all his great blessings. So the the point is that the amount of money that we have is not as important as the way we use it. So the question that I need to ask myself is, what is my attitude toward money and, and toward my possessions? You know, do I hoard them? Do I use them selfishly? Or do I use them to help others? Now, now the rich man wanted to warn his five brothers that they'd not share his fate, you know, in hell. And he thought that they would surely listen to a messenger who had been raised from the dead, send Lazarus. But Father Abraham said that if they did not believe Moses and the prophets, who spoke constantly about caring for the poor and caring for widows and orphans, that not even a resurrection would convince them. And you notice the irony, of course, in our Lord's statement. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die. Uh, You know, fully aware that even after he would rise from the dead, most of the religious leaders, most of the people of the day would not accept him. You know, they had their own preconceived notions about the Messiah and the kind of salvation that he would bring. And neither Scripture nor the Son of God himself could convince them otherwise. And sometimes I wonder if my ideas about about the church and, and, you know, uh, and the world and, you know, what's going on are, are not similarly myopic. Our Lady of Good Success, uh, 400 years ago, she promised that there'd be a marvelous restoration in the church after the turmoil of the second half of the 20th century. But will that restoration look exactly like I expect that it will? You know, it's probably best to leave that to God to, to, and to pray that I recognize it when it does happen, you know, if it hasn't already. And like I've often said, the greatest event of all time was the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But how many people that day at Calvary understood what was going on? How many thousands of Christians endured centuries of persecution before the early, you know, in the early church before the Catholic faith became accepted? How many of them thought that things couldn't possibly get any worse and that Jesus would surely come back any day now? You know, it sounds like my Facebook feed, you know, but it's something to think about. Uh, Also, we get in this uh, uh, passage of the gospel the term Abraham's bosom. This is, uh, in Jewish tradition, in in the Bible here, it's the biblical name for what theologians call the limbus patrem. That's the limbo of the fathers. And that is the the place where the souls of the just lingered after death before the resurrection of Christ uh, opened the doors of heaven. So limbus or limbo literally means border. Therefore, while, while Abraham's bosom is technically part of, of the netherworld, of Hades, um, it represented the remote periphery of Hades. Uh, and as Jesus relates in the parable, Abraham's bosom was a place of peace and refreshment and completely separate from the hell of the damned. And when Jesus told the good thief, for example, on the cross, "'Amen, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise,' He wasn't referring to heaven, but the limbo of the fathers, or Abraham's bosom, which is where Jesus went when we say in the creed he descended into hell. Now, this passage also directly relates to uh, a common bit of what I call Catholic kryptonite, you know, one of those things that our separated brethren will will throw at us to try and convince us that Catholicism is not biblical. Why do you Catholics call your priest's father? when Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, right? That's Matthew 23, verse 9. And and our separated brethren make this objection based on the words of Jesus regarding the scribes and Pharisees. And, And here it is in context. It's Matthew 23, 6 through 12. They love to have places of honor at banquets and the best seats in synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be addressed as rabbi. But do not allow yourselves to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brethren. Call no one on earth your father, for you have but one father, and he is in heaven. You must not be called teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you must become your servant. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." So the question is, did did Jesus want to be taken literally when he said, call no man on earth your father? Well, the church says no, and, and here's why. In the ancient Near East, father was a title of human respect, as was teacher and master. And here, Jesus is using figurative language to emphasize that all legitimate authority comes from God and that sincere believers should not be concerned with titles or and salutations or popularity or, or places of honor. Obviously, Jesus does not abolish the words rabbi and father and teacher. Rather, he's condemning ambition and authoritarianism on the one hand and, and blind servility on the other. The true father of Christians is God. The true master and teacher is Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, neither paternal nor teaching authority in others is ever absolute, but always relative and subordinate to the divine authority. All right, I I recall years ago an evangelist from the Church of Christ challenged me with that call no man your father verse, and I said, do you really take this passage literally? They said, oh yes we do, and I said, well what do you call your male parent if not Father. And she said, well, yeah, but Jesus, when he said that he was talking about the religious leaders. So I asked if Abraham would qualify as a religious leader, because as we just read in Luke 16, Christ himself refers to Abraham as father, and father Abraham. Uh, Likewise, in John 3.10, he addressed Nicodemus as teacher. Are you not a teacher of Israel? St. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 addresses the Jewish elders as fathers, and to go on better, St. Paul refers to himself as both a teacher and a father of the faithful. He said um, in 1 Corinthians 4 15, even if you have countless instructors, that is, teachers, even if you have countless teachers in Christ, you have not many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus. Now, Catholics take these passages in context and follow the biblical example of Christ and the apostles when we call our spiritual leaders Father, and that's no-nonsense. Okay, Um, I talk a lot about um, the rule of life as a Catholic on this program, and when we come back we're going to talk about prayer. Also, I'm going to let you know um, we're going to be having a special um, Michael Mass, a special Mass, the Ordinariate, here at our Sacred Heart Chapel on the 29th. I'll give you the details when we come back. So if you're in the area, we invite you to come and join us here at the Sacred Heart Chapel and the headquarters of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be right back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You may or may not know that here at the Sacred Heart Chapel, we have uh, an Anglican ordinariate community, Our Lady of Grace Catholic Church, who regularly have their liturgies here. And the the Anglican use liturgy is uh, fully Catholic and absolutely beautiful. Uh, It's very much like uh, if you were to go to the to the traditional Mass and, and hear it in English with the uh, with the traditional translation. And it's and it's, um, it's, it's quite uh, moving. And everybody's invited. They're inviting the public to come on the 29th, which is uh, Thursday, September 29th. They're going to have a uh, um, St. Michael the Archangel chaplet. And they're going to have Vespers and Pray the Angelus. Uh, that's going to start at 5 o'clock. In the evening at 6 p.m., they will have the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass uh, celebrated by Father Glenn Batten. And at 7 p.m., they're going to have a Michael Mass meal and then and, and a spiritual warfare presentation at 8 p.m. So they uh, have a suggested donation of $10 for the meal and, and $10, um, the presentation, uh, the uh, spiritual warfare presentation, um, uh, $10 per individual or $20 for the whole family. And they're asking you to RSVP to um, Edward Padilla and Richie. The the printout you gave me cut off his phone number and uh, email address. So uh, it's killing me. They want you to RSVP and uh, I will do my level best before the end of the program to get you that information where you will RSVP to so that you can let them know that you're coming. And I hope that you'll be able... To uh, join them. All right. Um, I've been taught, I talk a lot about, on this program about what I call a rule of life, that you have a daily regimen of uh, prayer and uh, activities and so forth to uh, keep yourself uh, living a good Catholic life. And, and of course, that includes daily prayer and meditation. And I know I talk a lot about prayer on this program, uh, liturgical prayer and personal prayer, uh, but it's only because prayer is so essential to your relationship with Christ, communication with our Lord. That's that's what religion is all about. And and I take as an axiom Saint Bernard of Clairvaux's kind uh, of gu- guiding principle for theology. He said, "It is to protect and preserve orthodox belief in the minds of simple men." Now uh, you know when Saint Bernard says simple, he doesn't mean you know, he's not calling the faithful ignorant or, or uh, much less stupid. For him, the, the, the term simple means humble. And humility is the first requirement of being a, a true subject of Christ the King. But I know, I know that many of us find the prospect of regular daily prayer uh, to be daunting, to say the least. And there are challenges to overcome, uh, not the least of which is our own anxiety about doing things right. And and the feeling of guilt when we fail or feel like we've failed to do that. But be not afraid. This is one of those cases where, you know, being simple and little in your own estimation, where where humility is your greatest friend. Now, uh, um, there's a fellow named Rick Hamlin who writes a great deal about prayer. He's an author of a number of books. Uh, He's the former executive editor of Guideposts magazine. And he wrote an article that I saw recently called How to Pray, 30 Ways to Move Forward in Faith. And uh, I put a link to it up in the, uh, in the show notes. It'll be there. Now, um, what he says is that insecurity about daily devotion is really fertile ground and that all it needs is for you to plant a seed, uh, just a mustard seed, he says. And and he offers 30 different ways that you can plant that seed. You know, it's like one a day for for a whole month is the idea. So I'm going to share some of them with you along with my comments. And the first thing uh, he suggests is to listen. You know, Bishop Sheen was fond of saying that prayer is a dialogue and half of a conversation is listening. So Hamlin says that as a kid, he used to wonder how the people in the Bible were able to listen to God, were able to hear God you know, how did they do it? He says, and then he'd hear his mom say, you have to stop talking all the time and listen to me. <laughs> Probably a common uh, occurrence for us all. But that's the key, to be to be quiet, to to be silent, to schedule a time when you can be silent with God, even if it's just a few minutes. And, and that's particularly good advice if, if you can spend some time before the Blessed Sacrament. And even if you can't, physically go before the tabernacle, you can do so in spirit and listen. Uh, the second thing he says is find a place. Oh, well, God can find you anywhere, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's easier to pray if you go back to the same place time and again. Make it your holy place. Uh, even if it's just an, an old easy chair, or even if it's just, you know, the, the, the rocking chair in the corner of your bedroom, whatever, uh, Thomas Akempis talked about the cell or the you know the the room of a cloistered religious and how time spent praying there, especially early in your monastic life, makes that cell, makes that place become like an old friend. And and you know, to borrow an overused term, it becomes your sacred space. And and it's one that you choose and you you bless it with your prayers and you make it your own. Now, for me, weather permitting, I like to go out in the backyard and I, I look at the leaves of the neighbor's trees and I listen to the birds and I have my iPhone set up to play some nice uh, medieval music, instrumental music. But if it's too cold or too hot, um, I, I pray in my comfy chair in the living room, which is also next to a window. And, you know, first thing in the morning when nobody else is up, I, I put on my medieval music on low and, and I make my morning offering and my morning prayers. And then I pray the the morning prayer, the liturgy, of the hours. Now that's just, that's my chosen prayer regimen. So I want to talk about how you can make a daily commitment to personal prayer. It doesn't necessarily require, you know, such a big investment of time or, you know, uh, an investment in liturgical books or whatever. Um, Rick Hamlin recommends uh, that you, quote, breathe a prayer and don't, you know— don't worry about it. You don't have to turn on your new age alarms. <clears throat> this is an entirely Christian concept. Scripture says that God breathed life into man. He breathed into man the breath of life. And in Hebrew and in Greek, the, the words for breath, ruach and penuma, respectively, um, are synonymous with spirit. So using your breath in prayer is kind of a, a way to, to reconnect with that. I mean, I know a priest uh, who advocated breathing, if you will, the Jesus prayer. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus prayer, they call it. Now, he would say that, you know, you can either do it mentally, you you know, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the living God, as you inhale, have mercy on me, a sinner, as you exhale. Uh, you can even say it as you uh, breathe in and out, but we can't do it audibly, um, but, you know, It's not meant to be heard by anyone but our Lord, so that's okay. Um, The point is that rather regular rhythmic breathing has a calming effect. I mean, there's nothing—it's physical. There's nothing supernatural about it, but it becomes a Christian spiritual exercise when you add the prayer to it, even if that prayer is just one word. You know, again, uh, a new priest that uh, talked about how the readings—a novus ordo priest. Saying that the readings at Mass, he said, it's too much. You've got, especially on a Sunday or a Holy Day, you've got an Old Testament reading, you've got a, uh, a New Testament reading, you've got the responsorial psalm, you've got the, the uh, hallelujah, and, and then you've got the, the uh, Gospel. And of course, all of the various prayers that are taken right out of the Bible that are run throughout the Mass. And he says, you know, t- you, you, you can't do like this whole biblical exegesis on all of those readings in, in the homily you know, uh, no matter how good you are. And, and he, um, said, you know, it's too much to take in. And so he would always just pick, uh, a verse, like one verse. And, and of course, and that's not, you know, not a newfangled idea. Uh, in my copy of the Roman catechism, the old catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, it's right in the front of it, there's the, uh, sermon program and it has the, uh, readings for all the, the Sundays of the year, and then for each Sunday, there is a doctrinal topic and a moral topic with one verse uh, for each, and then the references to all the, the paragraphs in the Catechism that, that relate to that. So it's, it's kind of like the, the sermon prep for the Catholic priest. You can talk about the doctrinal issue or the moral issue, and you have, you know, all of the, the related teachings of the Church there, and whatever you choose to focus on. And just, but you know, you're, you you know, it's kind of classical to just use that one verse and, and, uh, and preach a sermon on that. So it's not a new thing. He would do that. He would, he would take one verse and preach on it. And sometimes even one word, you know, and that's also uh, uh, Matthew Kelly famous for, for advocating that when you go to mass, he says, you know, you should bring a, a binder. You should bring a journal and, and listen You'd say, listen to the readings, listen even to the to the to the homily. listen even to the lyrics of the song, And listen for that one thing, that one thing that's uh, you know sticks out to you, and write it down. And he says, you know, at the end of a year, you have yourself a nice little uh, scrapbook of meaningful uh, patches of scripture and and you know ideas from homilies and whatever, things that are going to be uh, purpl- meaningful for you. Uh, I personally, I'm never going to take a journal to church and write stuff down. It's, it's, it's not me, but I understand about that idea of getting a word out. Okay, and and we're going to be talking about that how how you can pray using just one word. But I, I want to say we that we know that that vocal prayer is the key to opening the door to mental prayer. So uh, that is you know meditative and contemplative prayer. And and the thing is that rank-and-file Catholics actually do this all the time. Uh, For example, when you pray the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys and the Glory Bees of the Holy Rosary, you're you're saying those vocal prayers, but simultaneously meditating on the sorrowful, uh, joyful, or glorious mysteries of the life of Christ, which is mental prayer. So when we come back, um, a medieval book that suggests the prayer of just one word that and i'll get you the contact information for the uh, michael mass on the 29th all added more when we return right after this stay with us Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And uh, I was telling you uh, at the last segment about the upcoming uh, special mass here uh, at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. We're going to have a Michael Mass, Blue Mass, it's called, on September 29th, which is the Feast of the Archangels. And um, I, I mentioned that we have an Anglican Ordinariate community, Our Lady of Grace Catholic Church, who celebrates the Mass here regularly in uh, Covina 381 West Center Street in Covina, California. Five o'clock, they're going to have the St. Michael's Shield Prayer Group uh, leading uh, Michael the Archangel Chaplet, and then they're going to have uh, Vespers and the Angelus. Six o'clock will be the Michaelmas uh, Holy Mass, uh, Sacrifice of the Mass, celebrated by Father Glenn Botton. at 7 p.m., a Michaelmas Meal and at 8 p.m., a presentation on spiritual warfare. And they're asking for donations. They suggest a donation of $10 uh, for the meal. And for the presentation, they would like a, a donation of $10 or $20 for the entire family. And they're hoping that you will RSVP. And I now have the all-important information, the contact information. Uh, just contact Mark Edward Padilla at 323-742-742. 2990. That's 323 742 2990. Or email Mark Ed Padilla, all one word, Mark E-D-P-A-D-I-L-L-A at gmail.com. Hope you can make it. All right. Um, back to our, our discussion about prayer. I said that uh, you can make a prayer of a single word. And there is a a very famous medieval book called The Cloud of Unknowing, still popular today. The uh, the author is an anonymous fourteenth century Catholic mystic, and he uh, he suggested that you meditate not only with short uh, rote prayers like the Hail Mary or the Glory Be, but that you meditate with the shortest prayers of all, just one word. In fact, uh, that you could pray. And meditate with the shortest words of all, literally words of one syllable. And you might wonder why, until you do it, that you can choose just one word and close your eyes and start to pray. And and sometimes, you know, in our faith life, the smallest, the the, the shortest prayers, the the smallest words can refer to the biggest and most wonderful concepts that you can imagine. For example, how about God? God. You know, I mean, what concept could be bigger than God? There's so much that you want to say to God, but then again, uh, you know, doesn't God know all of that? You know, do do you not believe that he already knows what you want to pray for, what you should pray for, even better than you do yourself? You know, asking for particular blessings, for particular petitions, that's good. You know, uh, praying that your intentions are, will be in accordance with God's will is good and and a good way to conform yourself to his will. But isn't it enough sometimes just to call on him? I mentioned in the last segment the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, only son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But, you know, but just to pray the holy name of Jesus all by itself is a powerful prayer. Uh, In fact, to, to simply pray the name of Jesus carries a partial indulgence. Every time you say it with reverence and devotion. And I knew a priest who, who, he's gone on to his reward, but but that was uh, his constant practice to simply repeat the name of Jesus. And this is not something new. Uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, my favorite saint, back in the Middle Ages, he said, are you troubled? Think but of Jesus. Speak the name of Jesus. The clouds disperse and peace descends anew from heaven. Have you fallen into sin, so that you fear death? Invoke the name of Jesus, and you will soon feel life returning. No stubbornness of the soul, no weakness, no coldness of heart can resist this holy name. There is no heart which will not soften and open in tears at this holy name. And what about Christ? Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah the chosen one who chose you to pick up your cross and follow him. Think about what a big word Christ is. This this term for the Redeemer, the the Savior of the world, represents a massive theological concept. And yet there it is, just, just one syllable. You can breathe it in and breathe it out and meditate on the fact that Christ is within you. Of course, another name that we would do well to pray is Mary. And once again, the holy name of Mary is itself an indulgenced prayer and was strongly advocated as a prayer by St. Bernard of Clairvaux, among others. Now, the medieval mystic who wrote uh, The Cloud of Unknowing actually suggests a word that would never have occurred to me in a million years. And that word is sin. Can you imagine? I mean, I would never have... It would never have entered in my mind to, to use that word as a prayer. But it is absolutely certain that there are things that get in the way of me practicing my faith and, and, and loving God. And there's a name for those things. They're called sins. And the author of The Cloud says to pray sin is a way to ask for forgiveness, to, to own up to your own behavior, to let your sins go. Also, we have, um, I mean, an obvious choice might be the word faith. And you read in the scripture again and again, those who were healed by Jesus, had their sins forgiven, uh, came to our Lord in faith. And and Jesus often points out to them that faith is what healed them. And and sometimes not even something specific that they did, but just what they held in their hearts. And, you know, my faith can wax and wane, but to to pray that one word is is to nourish and, and to maintain it. And and as long as we're on the theological virtues, what about hope? Confidence in institutions like governments and the media and even the church is at the lowest point. I mean, it's at an all-time low. But in a world where so many people feel so broken and so betrayed and find it so hard to trust, that word hope reminds us that there is one who is completely trustworthy who is kind and merciful and faithful to his promises. And then, of course, there's love. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. God's love enriches our lives. Love is our way to God. In the Holy Bible, St. John tells us that God is love. And St. Paul says that in this present life, there remain uh, faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, Mr. Hamlin, coming back to the author of this article that that spurred all these thoughts, he says, suggests praying you. He said, whenever I sit down to pray, I know I'm not alone. There are thousands, millions doing just the same all across the globe. He says, people ask me to remember them in prayer, and I'm only too happy to do so. And, you know, I know that when we sit down to uh, pray our family rosary, that I will often add the intention uh, for those for whom we have promised to pray and for whom in justice we should pray. And and Mr. Hamlin's suggestion of praying just that one word, you, is a simple way to encompass all of that. I pray for you and you and you and you, he says, because we're all in this together. So get a word out. Scripture is full of words like God and Jesus and Mary, faith, hope and love, sin, Uh, mercy, healing, forgiveness. As Hamlin points out, he says, there's a lot going on in your head. There's a lot of noise. So much. He said that word you choose is a way to bring you back to the heavenly from your worldly concerns and fear. Try this, he says, and find the power in a word. And, you know, speaking of noise, that brings us back to the first point about listening. I'm going to leave you with this. And that is to learn to be comfortable in silence. Uh, so many people abhor silence the way nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> you know? uh, but loved ones can communicate without saying a word, just by being in each other's presence. Same goes for you and for the Lord. And this is especially powerful when you are before our Lord, the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Now, of course, God is always present and in prayer, you're making yourself present to God. But there might be a thousand thoughts going through your head, but you don't have to say a thing. That shared silence is a mutual blessing. Think about that. Do you bless God? Uh, well, and yes, you do. I think of the Canticle of Daniel, this is one of the benefits of praying the office, is there's all this scripture But in the Canticle of Daniel, in in Daniel chapter 3, verses 57 and following, he he lists all these creatures. It begins with, Bless the Lord, all you works of the Lord. Praise and exalt him forever. Angels of the Lord, bless the Lord. You heavens, bless the Lord. Sun and moon, bless the Lord. The stars, bless the Lord. The oceans and and the rivers, bless the Lord bless the Lord. And the, the mountains and the hills and and the, the deserts, bless the Lord. The, the weather, all the weather, uh, heat and chill and rain and snow, all bless the Lord. All the plants bless the Lord. All the animals bless the Lord. There's this long litany. All the works of the Lord bless the Lord in silence before God. And you can too. And that's no nonsense. All right. You know, I, I think we're going to come back to this next week. There's quite a lot of things that we didn't get a chance to look at. Uh, for one thing, I, I'd like to really talk about distractions. That's something that so many people complain about, about how distracted they are in prayer and what to do about that. And, and using the Psalms, even if you don't pray the office, how you can use the Psalms as a jumping off point for prayer. Um, and and we talked a little bit of, about humility. I want to talk about how to embrace humility, how how, how to praise God, how, to, how how giving to others can be a prayer, and and how to to pray through your emotions. You know, sometimes you, I go to pray. I'm angry. I don't feel like praying. Well, you know, how do you how do you pray through your anger? How do you keep at it? How do you how do you persevere through all of this? Well. All of that and more next week, uh, along with whatever happens between now and then. Also, don't forget the 29th of this month, the the special Blue Mass for the, uh, for the Feast of the Archangels. is going to have Michael Mass in the Anglican Use Mass, the Ordinariate Mass, the Ordinariate Our Lady of Grace Church will be here. Father Glenn Batten will be um, uh, celebrating the Mass at 6 o'clock, and then there's going to be a meal and... And a presentation. They're asking for suggestion donations for that. Uh, If you want to RSVP, please call uh, Mark Edward Padilla at 323 742 2990 or email him markedpadilla at gmail.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being with us yet again another week. We'll do it all again next Wednesday. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family. And please keep praying for us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio.